now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi. Hello to Boo Boo. Hello to Scooby Doo. Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? I was at Christmas. I was over at my uncle's house, my aunt and uncle's house. And his, my uncle's best friend came over. And he is no longer in the industry, but he was for, for quite a while. And if you're wondering who the nepotism baby is among us, it's Candace. I wish it was actual nepotism I could use and not just like, <laughs> oh, do you remember this beer commercial from the 80s? One of my blood <laughs> relatives was in that. Because all they, you know, most of them just worked in like commercials and stuff. Nothing, nothing cool. Um, my mom worked on a couple puppet shows. She, she did meet John Forsyth once, which is cool. So we, every time I'm anywhere and somebody has to make conversation, it comes around to me because I'm an easy target to pick on by interest in movies. So then people always of a certain age in Los Angeles get to tell me their anecdotes about running into movie stars. And um, so my uncle's friend told me two. Both of them are very good for two different reasons. The first one, he said that when he was a kid, a friend of his had a paper route and one of the regulars on their route was a man very dear to our hearts, our gall, our, our gallbladders, our spines, everything I think within us. Mickey Rooney. <laughs> and he said that Ronk was always very nice to these small children and that he always would be like, ah, oh, you know, go uh, into the house and grab yourself a Coke from the fridge. So I thought that was nice. That was nice that Ronk was out there keeping paper boys refreshed. I can see Ronk being yeah. nice to kids. Yeah, he said he was always a very nice guy, you know, very casual and not at all egotistical, which doesn't quite square with everything we yeah, know. Yeah, that's Ronk, a little less believable. Kind of weird. <laughs> I think I think probably with little kids, yeah. you know, he knows that they're not going to know who he is, so it's not as big of a deal maybe <laughs> but like he can't pull you know don't you know who i am with like a nine-year-old then the other one which is less uh heartwarming my uncle's friend had worked at the beverly hills hotel when he was young so i don't know his late teens early 20s and he saw various stars i guess in states of undress and he said that it, the rumors are true walter Matthau did in fact have a huge hog <laughs> enormous hell. oh god he was very proud of it and everybody knew so those are two cool things i learned over christmas happy birthday jesus truly is the most wonderful time of the year isn't it i uh, had never actually heard the walter Matthau. matt how jesus christ <laughs> <laughs> I, anyway, I'd never heard the rumors about his giant hog, so thanks for introducing yeah, as well as confirming that very pertinent information. Wonderful. This is why people listen, you know? They're coming to us with the hot goss. I have got so many, I mean, all the anecdotes that are going to come out over the course of this podcast, uh, like the time that my grandpa was in a restaurant and Gordon McRae was in the other booth talking about this dishwasher that he just bought. Um, <laughs> so many cool stories I have for you guys. My grandpa was genuinely very impressed. Like, he was, like, starstruck. He came home and he told my grandma, he was like, they're just like us, celebrities. They also <laughs> buy appliances. That was like the only time he was ever impressed. One time, 
he saw Gary Cooper in a sporting goods store in Beverly Hills. And one time Jack Benny waved at him on the street. And those are the only times he ever was impressed by a movie star. You're going to give them all away right up top. We need to like sprinkle them out. I still got a couple. I'll save the more salacious ones, I guess. Save the more salacious ones for our $10 tier in Patreon. Yeah, that is true. That is true. I do have some dirty, nasty ones. Yes, very cool. Very hip and very cool. That's how I spent Christmas. And there was another thing that... Oh, oh, and then my, my uncle's friend's wife was like... So that she's a, she's a real estate agent. And uh, she knew Matho because he lived in Pacific Palisades. And I guess she was working out there at the time selling houses. And she was like, is that why he always wore trench coats? <laughs> But imagine that said with a Hungarian accent. It was really cool. It was fun. Thanks for the story, everybody. Well, before I begin, I'd just like to apologize for the audio quality coming from me today. Uh, I do have a fan and a tiny air conditioner blasting on me because it is Australian summer and thus very hot. Tomorrow, it's going to be 43 degrees here in Celsius. And for all you freaks still using the Imperial system, that is 109 degrees in Fahrenheit. So gross really yeah it's disgusting and i prefer to have my comfort over quality so just gonna have to deal with that also i'd like to apologize for last week's ep being late but it is christmas the holidays things happen you just have to deal with that also yeah i'm on my laptop mic again hopefully it'll be the last time we'll see but you know what i just it's the end of the year who fucking cares we're three you know happy-go-lucky gals trying to record a podcast making our way against us you know? Oh, I was going to say my aunt in describing the podcast to somebody at Christmas said something like, oh, it's three lefties, three <laughs> young lefties. <laughs> so that's not lost on anybody. So you sound like you're coming to us from a runway at LaGuardia and Todd sounds like she is locked in someone's basement. And I sound, I sound normal. Oh yeah, you sound so great. I think that's a good... <laughs> You sound great until your dog, like, sits next to you and starts jingling for, like, 30 sustained minutes. That's true. She will make an appearance at some point. Randolph! Mortimer! Come in here quickly! I finally caught him! Who are you? I've caught him red-handed. Winthorpe, is that you? I'm making a citizen's arrest. This man is a drug dealer. Look, look here in his office drawer. He's got all the bad drugs here. Marijuana joints, pills, quaalude, valium, yellow ones, red ones, cocaine grinder, drug needles. He's the pusher, not me. Really, I just came in and caught this man planting this stuff in my desk. It's obviously some primitive attempt to try to frame me. Frame you? Boy, if that isn't the pot calling the kettle black. This man's obviously a lunatic. I'm calling security. Put that phone down. Hello, security. Merry Christmas. Um, hello, everybody. Welcome to What's in the Basket. I am Amelia, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Tiff. Hello. And Candace. Hello. And if you haven't guessed from the title of this episode, it is another Amelia special, really branching out this week, uh, moving on from 1982 to 1983 with the <laughs> comedy Trading Places. Uh, so this is our, our another entry in our um, holiday-themed canon. 
Uh, it is set over Christmas and New Year. So Trading Places initially was created under the title Black and White, uh, which is, <laughs> upon reflection, probably pretty heavy-handed with the racial message of this particular film. It was the idea of screenwriter Timothy Harris, uh, who was inspired by two brothers he would play tennis against. They were wealthy and cheap and engaged in a constant rivalry. Uh, here's a quote from Harris. There were these two brothers who were both doctors who would play tennis against on a fairly regular basis. They were both incredibly irritating to play because both had a major sibling rivalry going all the time about everything. So when Harris came up with the story, he told his writing partner Herschel Weingrod and they wrote the script and it was sold to Paramount where Jeffrey Katzenberg offered it to the director John Landis. So upon receiving the script, uh, Landis said, I got a call from Jeff Katzenberg, the executive at Paramount at the time, asking if I would read a script called Black and White, which I thought was a lousy title. <laughs> He's not wrong. Ironically, Black or White was something I did with Michael Jackson several years, several years later. <laughs> he said he was interested because it was a very old-fashioned social comedy, very much like the screwball stuff done in the 30s. Hollywood made a series of movies, Preston Sturges, Frank Capra, these comedies that were really about society at the time and were fairly political, but wonderfully funny and with strong characters. So it was written for two stars in mind. Uh, let's see if you can guess which comedy duo you think this was written as a vehicle for. Oh, man, okay. If it was written as black and white, so there's your first clue. Like Richard Pryor? Richard I... Pryor. Bingo. And Gene Wilder? Bingo. Wow. So ah, was, we're so it good. Was written as a vehicle for Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder, but Pryor was involved in a severe accident and suffered burns, leading him to be recast with Eddie Murphy. Oh my God. <laughs> Upon that decision, uh, Wilder was ruled out as well. Can I just say, this is like the second episode you've had where... Someone's been involved in an accident before shooting. I know, <laughs> I, I don't intentionally choose them that way, but it just, it seems to happen. So casting Eddie was a particularly risky move because at this point, his breakthrough role in 48 Hours had been filmed but not yet released, uh, which is crazy to think about because he is 22 years old at the filming of this. It's and he's insane. He seems so incredibly at ease yeah. in his role. It really uh, highlights the the genius of Eddie Murphy. And I know a lot of people, especially now, don't look at him most favourably. But when you look at Eddie Murphy in his peak, he's genuinely one of the funniest people alive. Yeah. What unit were you in? Uh, I was with the Green Beret, uh, Special Unit Battalion's uh, Commando Airborne Tactics, Specialist Tactics uh, Unit Battalion. Yeah, it was real hush-hush. I was Agent Orange. That was my name, Agent Orange. Special Agent Orange. That was me. Airborne, huh? This is the point where we have to say we are to some degree, maybe not with regard to his personal life, but uh, I would qualify this podcast as an Eddie Murphy apologist podcast. Yes, absolutely. We think Eddie Murphy is easily one of the funniest actors who's like ever lived. So absolutely. Eddie is up there with me. I, if you had to like, if I had to pick two, especially like physical comedians, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I could, 
if there's like a pantheon for me, it's like of the funniest people whose work I've ever been committed to film. It's like there's you got Buster Keaton and you got you got Harbo Marx and you got Eddie Murphy and Lucille Ball and I think that's it. Yeah. I think those are the only the only funny people who've ever worked in film. <laughs> and maybe Steve Martin. Maybe. Maybe Steve Martin. Yeah, Steve Martin and Mae West are part of like a second tier where it's too, it's too it's too verbal. Sometimes sometimes I just want to laugh at somebody sticking their feet in a vat full of lemonade. <laughs> And That's the second time you've referenced that bit. <laughs> it's my favorite. It's my favorite Marx Brothers bit. But um, Eddie would do that. Eddie hits. Eddie tickles that exact same funny bone for me. And uh, there are so many moments in this movie where I just cannot restrain my laughter. And I can only imagine how difficult it must be to work with Eddie when you are constantly trying not to not to break. There are just so many moments of brilliance in that, even down to in the final scene of the film where he takes a sip of the champagne and then, like, wipes his mouth really delicately. So funny. But, yeah, as I said, it was a relatively risky move for them to be casting any movie... Uh, Eddie, Eddie movie. <laughs> Eddie, he is Eddie movie. <laughs> Eddie Murphy at this point. Um, when Landis was given Eddie Murphy as a replacement, um, he said... 48 Hours hadn't come out yet, but they'd previewed it, and Eddie Murphy had previewed very well, and they thought, ah, this kid's going to be a star. So they said, what do you think about Eddie Murphy playing the Billy Ray Valentine part? And I, of course, said, who's Eddie Murphy? So I guess they took a big punt on that, but it really paid off for them. But he was probably a member of the cast that was most easy to cast. Uh, From here on out, it gets a little bit more difficult for John Landis. For the casting of Lewis Winthorpe, we have Dan Aykroyd in this role. And he really had to fight to get Dan Aykroyd cast in this movie um, because there was a perception in Hollywood that following the death of John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd's career was over. Landis said John Belushi had died and Dan Aykroyd's movie without John was called Dr. Detroit, which was a failure. So conventional wisdom was that Aykroyd without Belushi was like Abbott without Costello and that his career was over, which is pretty brutal. And so Landis really had to fight um, and argue that Dan Aykroyd was a really good actor and that he could deliver to get him cast, which I'm very grateful for because it really did lead to a renaissance in his career um, with, you know, Ghostbusters, Spies Like Us, Dragnet, and of course our favourite, uh, Nothing But Trouble. Yeah. <laughs> What is this place? Revolving district court for the village and shire of Alkenvania is now in order. The Honorable Reeve, Alvin Balkanizer, presides. Dan Aykroyd. Put out that dog rocket! Nothing but trouble. I'm so sorry. Hey, you know, you and I ought to spend a little more time together. I'd like that. Would you? Welcome to the last resort. You look pretty this evening, sister. Doing something different with your hair? <laughs> Where something's always cooking. How about a nice Hawaiian punch? Uh, there's some good friends. Okay, let's eat. And then to continue his fights, uh, to cast Jamie Lee Curtis, he had to fight with studio execs because at this point in time, uh, she was still seen as a scream queen and a B-picture star. Um, she'd just come off... Halloween 2, but Landis had worked with her on a 50s horror documentary where she was the voiceover and said that she would be perfect for the part. And so he went to the studio office and they said, this woman's a B-movie actress. And Landis argued that not after this movie, but boy, they really didn't like the fact that I cast Danny and Jamie. And for her part, Jamie Lee Curtis was eternally grateful for Landis for taking a chance on her 
as it launched her out of the horror niche that she'd been trapped in and showed the world her comedic talents. Curtis later said, John Landis single-handedly changed the course of my life by giving me that part. Which is very interesting to think about because she's so very funny. Yeah. I love Jamie Lee. They're both really good in this. Like, they're no Eddie Murphy, but um, they're... (laughs) They both deliver, I think. Yeah, I think Dan Aykroyd, I think, is always, I mean, not always. <laughs> My stepmom is an alien. It's a bit of a stretch to be calling him a always delivering. But um, I think in the 80s particularly, he was good value for money. And, like, certainly when Ghostbusters came out, he really just reached new heights. He's so good at juggling the, like, transition between the kind of, like, prissy prep school guy and then the fucking whole, like, yeah. drunk Santa bit. He really... <laughs> it's... <laughs> and I think what's most interesting about his character is that his character never really learns anything. Oh, no. <laughs> never learns. Uh, and he plays that off so well, so you never truly hate him. Yeah. Like, you might at the beginning, but, like, at the end, like, he's still the same asshole, but you, you still like him. <laughs> yeah, I was I was thinking this movie handles the, the, like, filthy, degrading 80s comedy trope, like, way more more deftly and I think people give it credit for. I was thinking of it in comparison to something like the Bette Midler movie Ruthless People which has kind of a similar like wacky undertone to it but there is nothing as disgusting Hi Lulu! There is nothing (laughs) as disgusting in Ruthless People or any of those other movies. There's nothing as gross as Aykroyd on the bus. (laughs) That is to me, that is like John Waters levels of repulsive. And um, the fact that Aykroyd was willing to do it, I think, speaks very well to um, his his acumen as a comedian because it's embarrassing and it's, it's sad and it's pathetic and, again, just viscerally repugnant. And that part was actually improvised. A little bit of fun fact. That's disg- that's a hor- horrifying glimpse into the <laughs> inner workings of his mind. So thanks for that. In the uh, interview they give, that's on my special edition of Trading Places DVD. <laughs> it's just like, oh, what should I do with this beard and this salmon? I'll just eat it through the gross beard. I'm like, no, you can always just not do that. God, <laughs> it's like, like he's like flossing with the beard when it gets like stuck in his teeth yeah. when he's biting into the salmon. Just... That is my dad's favorite scene in cinema history. Like, he'll... Well, your dad's got good taste. Because... He'll be laughing about that scene like 10 minutes before it happens. <laughs> He's just like already thinking about it. It's like the opposite of like a popcorn <laughs> scene, you know? It's it's a it's an up-chuck my pop, I'm gonna unpop my corn <laughs> scene. Uh, Alright, so another unconventional casting decision was that of the refined and ever-judgmental butler, Denim Elliott. Um, initially, Sir John Gilgood was in talks to play Coleman the butler. However, Landis pushed for Elliot, who is relatively unknown to studio execs. He adds, I think, a level of steely judgment, particularly towards Winthorpe's antics, that that sort of acts as a, this is what the audience is thinking and feeling, Mm -hmm. Um, while not entirely breaking down the fourth wall. Hello. Oh. Oh, hello, Mr. Duke, sir. What? A scientific experiment. Well, not at all, sir, no. It all sounds very uh, original. Well, it's your house, sir, and I work for you. I shall make the necessary arrangements. And a very good night to you, sir. What a scumbag. Okay, now we come to the casting of our villains. I think the casting of the villains is perfect. They're both perfect 
in their roles as Mm -hmm. Randolph and Mortimer Duke. So this was a surprise to me, but John Landis was actually good friends with Ralph Bellamy. Um, So he was his first choice to play Randolph Duke. And apparently they just like hung out and just gossiped all the time. So he's just like, hey, you want to be in my movie? Can you imagine just being good friends with Ralph Bellamy? (laughs) Just I don't. I want to be good friends with Ralph Bellamy. I wonder if Landis <laughs> lived in Palm Springs because I think that's where, um, or had a house in Palm Springs or something. Because I'm pretty sure that's where Bellamy had relocated. Maybe, maybe Landis is a good tennis player or something, and we just don't know it. How did Bellamy feel about the Twilight Zone incident? I don't know. I don't have any facts on that one. Well, you should find out. <laughs> because you should have anticipated that question. Well, I guess we need to perform a seance to get his say. However, the casting for Mortimer Duke was a lot more difficult for him. His initial choice was Ray Milland, if you can believe it. Imagine. Imagine if it was Ray Milland and Richard Pryor. <laughs> But due to his age and his health, he was uninsurable, so he had to turn down the part. He's not... How much older is he than, than Don Amici? He can't be that much older than Don Amici. Well, he could have had just been failing in his health. I just like the... I like the age being the excuse. When I it's know. Like, I'm like, I'm fairly certain they're close in age. He's literally one year older than Don Amici. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sad, because Amici looks great in this. So this is Landis's word-for-word story of casting Don After Ray Milland fell through, he thought, well, I needed someone who was a star in the 40s who had never really played a villain. And I was thinking, hey, what about Don Amici? And the casting woman said, Don Amici's dead. And I said, I don't think so. I would know if Don Amici was dead. (laughs) So we called the Screen Actors Guild and his residuals were being sent to his son in Phoenix, Arizona. And I thought, well, that's not a good sign. (laughs) (laughs) And he didn't have an agent. And I thought, shit, goddamn, who else could we get? When one of the secretaries said, I heard you're looking for Don Amici. And we said, yeah. And she said, I see him all the time walking in in Santa Monica. So I called information. I said, is there a Don or a D Amici in San Vincent in Santa Monica? And there was. So I called him. And you know, he has that unmistakable voice. And you realize Don was a huge star in the late 30s. Definitely a big star of the 40s. I mean, he was Alexander Graham Bell, for Christ's sakes. A major star in the 50s, Broadway star, radio star, movie star, television star. And I said, Mr. Amici? And he said, yes. I'm with Paramount Studios and I'm making a film and I'd like to consider it for a part. So I had a script sent over and could you please read this and can you come in tomorrow? And he said, yes. Would you like us to send you a car? And he said, no, no, I can drive. (laughs) I said, great. And he came in and was prepared to read for me. I was so shocked. I said, you don't have to read for me. He hadn't made a movie in 14 years and had been doing dinner theater. Oh, my God. (laughs) Just like Tab Hunter. And then later, um, while they were shooting in Philadelphia, Landis asked, Don, may I ask a question? How come you haven't worked in 14 years? And he said, well, nobody called. (laughs) It's the most pressing fucking thing like everyone just forgot about Don Amici that is really sad actually I was gonna say maybe he should make himself a little easier to access though because Landis had to do a lot of footwork and maybe <laughs> people had been like oh Amici but oh he's, he's well dead. you can't contact him he's dead his residuals are going to a P.O. box in Arizona so uh, but after this film the next movie he made was Cocoon which he oh, won an Oscar yeah. for. So he, after this movie, he worked until the end of his life. So oh, I, I was just going to say, I think Amici is a really interesting one because he seems to have grown so much as an actor 
in the decline of his career, which is interesting. I, I was thinking about how if you put together all those... And, okay, Fox gave him the worst scripts. He had the worst movies, apart from something like Alexander Graham Bell and like Heaven Can Wait. Most of those movies are those terrible like Betty Grable musicals, you know, they're shit. Ty Power has all the good parts, you know, Michi never gets the girl very Bellamy-like in a way. But I remember listening to the Broadway cast recording of Silk Stockings, which is, uh, Michi originated the the part that's ultimately the, the, the Fred Astaire part in the movie. And there's so, he's so good. Silk Stockings, I touch them and find the joys that remind me Silk stockings that give me again Your shy laughter when they were new And it's like, where is that in all of that earlier work? And I wonder if, like, that had kind of fucked him over, maybe. I know he worked a lot. I I remember reading something about how, because he had started out in radio, he was used to working, like, in, like, the middle of the night. So working during the daytime kind of maybe, maybe messed up his internal clock a little bit. I don't know. And maybe he was doing both at the same time. But I just think it's sad that it's like, he's so good in this. He's so good in Cocoon. He's so good in the recording for something like Silk Stockings. And then it's just like you don't get that there's no buzz at all in his movies from the 30s and he's slightly better in the movies from the 40s i don't know it's just sad i always hate to see that we hate to see it hate to see you hate to see a late bloomer who wins an oscar <laughs> like oh poor, poor fucking don amici uh all right so the final bit of weird casting was that of clarence beaks who's the shadowy deep throat character who procures the crop, crop report for the dukes and so in a turn that could only really come out of the 80s the part was initially offered to G. Gordon Liddy. Um, So (laughs) if you're not up on your history knowledge, he was the man behind the Watergate scandal. And apparently he was on board with the part right up until his character was molested by a gorilla. Oh, God. That was the straw. They just couldn't do that. Um, so wow. instead the part went to Paul Gleason, who is best known um, for his role as the principal in The Breakfast Club. They should have called Scooter Libby. He would have <laughs> fucked that gorilla. Uh, there is a nod, though, to um, Liddy with Beaks reading his autobiography, Will, on the train. And there's also the picture of Nixon on Amici's desk. And uh, Ronald Reagan is also there. They just have all these framed pictures of the fucking presidents. I love it. There's also a picture of the Pope on the wall, too. I know. But yeah, that sort of wraps up that weird casting. There's a lot of cameos throughout the film. Um, You know, James Belushi, Jamie Lee Curtis's younger sister, Kelly Curtis, Frank Oz, uh, Bo Diddley is in there. Burnt my fingers, man. I beg your pardon? Man, that watch is so hot, we're smoking. Hot? Do you mean to imply stolen? I need 50 bucks for it. 50 bucks? No, no, no. This is a Rochefoucauld, the thinnest water-resistant watch in the world. Singularly unique, sculptured in design, handcrafted in Switzerland, and water-resistant to three atmospheres. This is the sports watch of the 80s. $6,955 retail. You got a receipt? No, it tells time simultaneously in Monte Carlo, Beverly Hills, London, Paris, Rome, and Stad. In Philadelphia, it's worth 50 bucks. Just give me the money. 
Al Franken and Tom Davis are in there. So it's sort of like a guess who's coming next kind of situation (laughs) with the cameos. But I guess now is as good a time as any to actually discuss the plot. Well, you have two elderly brothers, uh, the Dukes, who who live together, uh, presumably bathe together, I don't know. Eddie, Eddie assumes so when he first meets them. <laughs> they wear matching clothes. They wear matching clothes. They're very close. And they have a, resol- uh, a, a standing argument between them regarding whether genetics or environment are more important in shaping a person. And uh, they decide to bet. They kind of hatch this like prince and the pauper kind of situation in which one of their employees, played by Dan Aykroyd, is framed for not only theft, but also possession of PCP and is thrown into into jail. He's kicked out of his house, which they own. Uh, His bank account is like seized by the IRS, the whole thing. And to, to reduce him into, into, into degradation to see whether or not he will turn to crime. And they take a criminal who is a local kind of beggar con man, um, smooth talking guy played by Eddie Murphy. And they decide to pluck him up out of the streets and turn him into an executive and see whether he can sink or swim effectively. And once they've decided what's, who's won the bet, they're just going to... You know, pop Eddie back over on the wrong side of the tracks, and all this other stuff happens. Uh, and then Dan Aykroyd is, meets Jamie Lee Curtis, who's a who's a hooker with a heart of gold, who decides that she's going to help him get back up on his feet. And of course, she's she's very smart and she's wild all this money away. And Eddie forms a a very heartwarming friendship with his butler, formerly Aykroyd's butler. Hello, Lulu, again, uh, played by Denim Elliott. And he meets up with Aykroyd, who at this point has just devolved into a lower life form. And they decide that they are going to take uh, the Brothers Duke down because the Dukes have been engaged in insider trading and um, they're going to take their information and use it for their own personal betterment and hopefully to the ruination of the Duke brothers. And I think that's the whole plot of the movie. I'll go into what exactly happens at the end later because it's it's not something that me, not being the most financially literate person, fully understood. <laughs> but yeah, I think it works as a comedy. A lot of comparisons are drawn between it and and Mark Twain's Prince and the Pauper and Million Pound Banknote. But I think that it also is a movie that exists completely contemporaneously within the decade that it was made. You're looking at a time where uh, wealth and the generation of wealth and being rich and the image of being rich is really in vogue uh, with yuppie culture and, you know, greed is good. And I think it's a really pointed satire that perhaps people seem to look at from a modern point of view as being I guess not as satirical and as clever as it, it actually is uh, a lot of people frame it through the lens of oh you know it's there's it's a bit problematic and it's like yeah obviously it's problematic it was made in 1983 but it's still like operating on a level like it tackles the issue of race through the lens of class um, and class inequality that a lot of films particularly today People seem to be scared to say anything about class to such a yeah. degree that, like, well, that's because everybody making movies now is in the elite. I think that's absolutely a huge part of it, yeah. You've got generations of people who all come from the same film school bloodlines, you know, or whose careers are financed by their parents or their family trust or whatever, and you've, you've lost that touch of 
the common people, as it were. And so, speaking as somebody who comes from an elite Hollywood family, I very much understand, you know. My uncle did do the voice of a dog in a dog food ad one time. <laughs> but I mean, Don Amici also did the voice of a dog once, so how far removed are you? <laughs> Don Amici did the voice of my favorite dog. From Walt Disney Pictures comes the story of three extraordinary friends on an incredible journey home. Home is just over that mountain. Wow. I hope you know what you're doing. A journey into danger. Whoa. Guys, wait up, wait up. Where they must work together. Hang on, sassy. If they hope to survive. Yeah. I mean, this is like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Walt Disney Pictures presents Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. Rated G. Starts Friday, February 12th at a theater near you talk about a movie that should have won academy awards and also explores the commodities market in <laughs> a very a very approachable way i think uh yeah class in this movie is is i think the real driving factor i, I th- and i love the way that race is incorporated in this also also gender and, and a little bit of what would be the word like there's a little bit of like geographical you know like uh when uh jamie lee has that line to Ackroyd about how you know she's from some shitty little mining town that he's he's never heard of you know he just like kind of gives us look well who gives a shit you know um that element is is very much lost but the way it skewers the yuppies is so good that scene where you have Ackroyd's old harvard pals fucking doing some barbershop acapella bullshit in their tennis sweaters is just the high i get hives watching it my friend Neath the elms we sing our tones, we're brothers to the end. Muffy in the bathroom stall, Margaret by the lake, Susan down in Whitley Hall, Constance on the make, Constance Fry, Constance Fry, anytime you call. Constance would fulfill your needs Winter, spring, or fall <laughs> <laughs> That was great. That was really great. The hair stands up on the back of my neck. I hate, I hate yuppies so much. It's the whitest thing ever committed to celluloid. And that's what makes it work so well because you see really as Ackroyd bursts into the scene, you know, wearing his like huggy bear outfit, you know, it's like you really see um, how like ludicrous and cartoonish it is from like a new perspective. It's like it comes across as being very ghoulish. All those, all those white rituals, you know. Yeah, like Ava went like the club that they go to go into. I think it's one of the best gags in the movie where the sign at the club, it says Liberty and justice for all members only yeah all of those scenes like the ones with the room with all of the paintings on the wall where winthorpe is entrapped it's haunted it feels really like empty and judgmental and like a very hostile place you know i mean that's the whole point they cast you out as soon as you don't play with by the rules or whatever but it really does a good job at presenting the excesses of the wealthy and contrasting that with the basically deeply entrenched poverty, particularly of the kind of the 80s. I mean, a lot of films do this, particularly Eddie Murphy comedies, but in the opening credits, they contrast wealth 
with extreme poverty. So you see it here, you see it in Beverly Hills Cop, in Detroit, uh, in The Golden Child. And it's like, it's quite confronting, especially if you're looking at it now. I mean, in the 80s, it might not have been as confronting because it was a thing that was happening to people at the time. But like in this one particularly, because you see the Dukes getting ready and they're having all of their serving staff say goodbye to them as they get into their fucking huge car. Good morning, Mr. Duke. Good morning, Mr. Duke. And this is contrasted with people trying to warm, warm their hands around a fucking bin, you know? It's like... Oh, and like I've seen a lot of modern critics say they don't understand why it's set in Philadelphia because a lot of comedies, particularly in the 80s, were set in New York. But on that, the screenwriter Timothy Harris said, uh, Philadelphia has a connection with the founding of the country, the Constitution, everybody being entitled to the pursuit of happiness. All the idealism that's built into America is encapsulated here. I thought it was a good way to highlight that, which I think is interesting. Also, this is my point, uh, if you think about it, the film is about a pair of quarrelling brothers, um, and setting it in the city of brotherly love seems to add a delicious <laughs> drop of irony. I think there's two things at play here. One, I, I think that there's the fact that now studios in making films are so nervous about depicting poverty in any way other than like a tale of like exceptionalism you know there are m movies that that tell the stories of people who are who are working class or people who are but destitute unless it's like yeah but you know what he's also a genius mathematician or she's a chess prodigy you know whereas eddie murphy movies and i guess i don't know john landis movie um we're not afraid to show that because that's part of it's just part of the, the panorama in which in which that takes place and it's also such a i, I guess uh it's even I think the movies nowadays strike me as being even from more of a privileged perspective because it's so condescending. You know, the idea that stories are only worth being told about neighborhoods like the one, you know, that Billy Ray lives in. If there is that kind of like, again, like twist to it, you know, these aren't just regular poor people. These, these are exceptional poor people. And the point of this movie is that there is no such thing as an exceptional poor person. There's just the idea of the exceptional rich person that these people, rich people shouldn't be exceptional in the first place, you know, and that they should be violently executed and um, <laughs> disappropriated of, of their means. And then two, I think old money has receded in significance in American film because old money in general is, is no longer, it's not aspirational. Now, people don't aspire to have class, people aspire to have money. I think Trump being in the White House is pretty reflective of that. Mm. You know, Melania dresses like shit, their kids are ugly. You know, the whole thing. Trump is a bully and an ingrate and he pisses in trash cans probably. I'm just, or on, you know, women, whatever. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's like people no longer want it, that whole, uh, you know, that, that idea of the, the oak paneled, you know, estate with a butler is no longer a appealing to people um, in that same way. So I think a lot of the, the, I think that might be like a little bit of a generation gap with some of these critics. They don't understand the direct like visual symbolism and significance of opening in a house, uh, an estate like the Dukes, because that's no longer the vernacular. That's no longer what we think of as being rich. That strikes us as being almost kind of quaint and kind of like Downton Abbey-ish. Whereas nowadays we think of Rich as being like 21 year old TikTok icon who drives a G-Wagon 
and has $47,000 worth of plastic in her face. You know, like, that's rich. It's it's become very crass. Not to defend, like, the entrenched, like, white bread bullshit of something like this particular depiction of wealth in this movie, but I just think, I think wealth has changed in America and how people approach it and what they think of as being um, worth satirizing or worth attacking, which in a way I think could reflect maybe a growing class consciousness. Maybe it's in the reverse, because now we're realizing that really, you know, the bourgeoisie is also our enemy, and that's what the Kardashians are. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think that this is the kind of movie that wouldn't be made today for the reasons that you said and also that even in that in the depictions we do get of poverty there's always this thing that I absolutely abhor which is the the white savior you know there's always one like I think even in this Just Mercy film that's coming out in January will have some element of that and I'm just I don't want to see it don't care to see it yeah you know? exactly just don't care to see it because it's not reflective of the greater population exactly no but like the character and the character in this movie who's the most thoroughly derided and mocked and exploited and well i don't know, really exploited is the proper word but yeah i guess exploited is the Ackroyd character who again at the end of the day is not the man behind the curtain he's not the one pulling the levers you know he is he's still working for a salary so he is still, you know, he's not he's not the master of capital. You know, he's not a capitalist because he doesn't own capital. You know, he doesn't live in, he doesn't own the house that he lives in. Everything can be taken away from him at any moment. And I think that's also significant. I think the fact that he's his whole lifestyle is furnished effectively on credit and at the whim of his employers is also significant. And anything can be taken away from him. And once he loses those trappings, he reverts into an absolutely feral state. Mm. So, But then he's also got nothing to lose, as proven by the fact that he was ready to go in there and shoot off the Duke's kneecaps (laughs) as soon as he got the opportunity. You know, you can't just go around and shoot people in the kneecaps with a double-barreled shotgun because you pissed at them. Why not? called assault with a deadly weapon you get 20 years for that shit listen do you have any better ideas yeah you know it occurs to me that the best way you hurt rich people is by turning them into poor people uh well i guess in that sense it's about class solidarity you know he and eddie forge a bond and now he's ready to go take out um those who control the means of production (laughs) well yeah i think it's certainly something that i miss from movies like just thinking back to even like the golden child and coming to america the different depictions of class like even in those movies the people who are lower class and struggling and in poverty are always given level of dignity and self-sufficiency that i feel is missing from a lot of movies if we take last year's oscar winner the green book the fact that a white man was teaching a black man how to be a black man and that won an oscar that was fucked well you know and that the whole thing in la la land where it's like ryan gosling's character is like oh you you know black people just don't understand jazz the way i do another thing i noticed too is um uh, Aykroyd's fiance she's like so thoroughly horrified by him when he's been framed by him apparently being a heroin dealer or as he keeps reminding her a pcp dealer those are poor people drugs look at the man i loved those children i wanted to have in Breastfeed be a heroin dealer. It wasn't heroin. It was angel dust, PCP, and it... listen, Penelope. I swear to you, on my honor, with Almighty God as my witness, I am not an angel dust dealer. As if these fucking yuppie guys in 1983 aren't doing mountains of coke. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's such a great gag when Frank Oz like opens the bag and then he's like, "This is angel." 
angel dust. And you're yeah. like, oh, fuck, it's angel dust. You know, you, you totally expect it, you know, expect it to be Coke. And I'm sure, like, you know, maybe maybe that is Ackroyd's Coke. It's it very much, it's that, it's that, like, being tainted by the association with poverty. Like, when Jamie Lee is taking Ackroyd back to her apartment, and then she says hi to those guys on the street, and she slaps one of them on the ass. Rahim, Mohammed, Larry, how you guys doing? You know those people? He's like, you know those people? You know, <laughs> it's like what indicate? Yeah, I think she, I think she knows. Them. I think she knows them pretty well. She's made hand contact with his. Yeah. <laughs> well, you'd hope so. Anyway, or else she's just assaulted someone on the street. Um, also, I think it's interesting to point out that, like, on the documentary interview that about this, a lot of the other cast members was like, oh, Jamie Lee Lee's character. She's just not. She's just not real. She's just a fantasy, obviously written by men. But I think if we look at it through a modern contest, which I was just saying was stupid um, to do, it's probably a more sympathetic depiction of a sex worker than we'd ever seen, particularly in the 80s. Look, I I cannot begin to tell you how much I appreciate this... Uh, uh... Ophelia. Ophelia? Oh, you realise that that's I know, the name I know, of... I know, I know. Hamlet's girlfriend. He went crazy. She killed herself. This is not Shakespeare, Louis. Look, I'm 24 years old and from a small, miserable little mining town you probably never heard of. The only thing I got going for me in this whole big, wide world is this body, this face, and what I got up here. I don't do drugs. I don't have a pimp. This place is a dump, but it's cheap, it's clean, and it's all mine. I've saved 42 grand and it's in T-bills, earning interest. I figure I got three more years on my back. I'll have enough to retire on. You're a prostitute. To say that she is financially independent, that she is, you know, smart and aware, and she's got her own apartment, she's trying to work her way up, doing the best she can, given mm-hmm. what she's got. The times may have changed enough for it to be definitely a more sympathetic view of that than we've seen previously. Yeah, I think it, it, it's right in between that kind of, I don't know if it's if it's quite charting with the with the evolution of feminism or, or what it is, but it goes from the depiction of, you know, in, in the 60s, where obviously things are much more downplayed, where it's like, again, it's something that people, women are forced into. It's, it's dangerous work. But at the same time, because of movie morality, they deserve whatever happens to them kind of an idea. You know, there's no redemption isn't possible. Although there's kind of this vogue in the 60s for movies like they're like brothel movies, you know. And then you end up getting to the point where uh, sometime in the 90s, it evolves into being like, well, you know, it's, it's, she's doing it because she wants to. And it's her choice. And that just makes her so sexually liberated. And would you like to see her titties again? You know, it becomes uh, a vehicle uh, for like visual exploitation of actresses by directors. And which this do- that does happen in this movie. She's, this does happen in this movie. Yeah. It it does. But even though I do think the the shot is definitely gratuitous, um, I think it it walks the line carefully in the fact that it, it gives her dignity and humanity, and it's it shows that she's she's working towards something. But then again, there is kind of I guess that that note of like not all streetwalkers, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. she's not like the other ones. She doesn't do drugs, and she's she's got the same name as a Shakespeare character, you know? I, <laughs> 
that is a little bit, you know, very pat and very a little bit Manny Pixie Dream Girl. So I guess I, I guess I see it from both sides. But I think it's overall a much more layered depiction than you get with a lot of stuff of this era. I always think of the Catherine O'Hara character in um, For Your Consideration, who previously had an Oscar nomination like in the 70s for playing like, a, you know, like the one-legged prostitute, you know, who just, you know, is just searching. She just wants love, you know, a, a character, which is like such a cliche of movies of, of that era. That is such a, a whole thing. And I do like how when you're approaching it just from a temporal perspective of like where trading places exist within that particular tradition, it does break with that element of the past. It does improve upon it in some way. So even though it's not perfect, I can unfortunately credit John Landis and company for doing something, which I don't like to do. Apart from killing people, I can <laughs> yeah. credit John Landis with killing people. Back into the rest of the filming, um, a lot of the final scenes in the script were in Chicago at the Commodities Exchange, but they weren't allowed to film there. So that's why it's changed to them trading in New York at the World Trade Center. And then in that scene... 90% of the floor traders are actual traders and a great deal of it was shot during actual trading hours Uh, which watching that scene it's the scariest thing I've ever seen and makes me deeply uncomfortable I'm just like how does humanity and the economy operate when it's like this and that literally determines the price of the bread that you buy at the supermarket it's truly insane I mean thanks Pete Buttigieg (laughs) yeah it's I mean, it's like, obviously it doesn't operate that way today, but I the fact that it, that is at its heart, that kind of ferocious, volatile environment still kind of exists, albeit in a more digital form, uh, gives me hives and I just, I hate it. I hate it so much. Uh, and I definitely think that the world has too many economists. Uh, so <laughs> if you're a young person going to study economics at university give it a rethink just rethink that we don't need any more do something this is a direct shout out to rita this is a direct shout out to our friend rita uh but apparently the floor traders are really really into it if anything they were a bit less rough than they normally were one oh two three four one eight four Uh, John Landis himself was very taken aback at how physically rough it was um, and that they really elbowed and pushed one another and that it was almost like a contact sport. And uh, this is one of my favourite stories that I read. There are a few scenes in this movie where Don Amici has to say some bad words and apparently he was really, really uncomfortable about saying these um, to the point where he said, John Landis, I don't know. I don't know if I can if I can say this. And John Landis said, "Well, you're going to have to, or you don't get the part," which is fucking brutal, um, especially <laughs> when you went to such an effort to cast him in the first place. But it, it took a long time for him to uh, reconcile having to say both the f word and the N-word, which he says, and it's quite confronting. But when he was filming, he refused to do more than one take for each of them, um, particularly the end scene where he shouts, "Fuck him!" when Ralph Bellamy has a heart attack, which is <laughs> definitely one of the funniest scenes in the movie. Uh, this is an outrage. I demand an investigation. You can't sell our seats. A duke has been sitting on this exchange since it was founded. We founded this exchange. It's ours. It belongs to us. Oh, my God. your brother's not well. We better call an ambulance. Fuck him. Now you listen to me. I want trading reopened right now. Get those brokers back in here. Turn those machines back on. Turn those machines back on. 
every time they shot a scene with his character um, using vulgar language, Amici went out of his way to apologize to the entire cast cast and crew, even going so far as to show up early on set in order to do so. That habit was beaten into him by Loretta Young, probably, if I had to guess. I think the one the one take thing also really works because when he yells fuck him it's like purely like he he comes across as being like apoplectic like his face is about to launch out into the crowd which works really well then because he's like I gotta get it out and then we're done and then it's all good and then I can go back to my dinner theater. It's so good. I'm glad he could do it for that scene. The other scene now I will mention is obviously the most problematic scene of the movie. I mean we can't just gloss over it because that's not the kind of people that we are. There is a scene where they're on the train and in disguise where Dan Aykroyd elects to use blackface, which even for 1983, studio executives were like, this is bad. And in the documentary, John Landers is just like, that's just a joke. I'm like, no, it's not a joke. Like it was, you didn't have to do that. He definitely didn't have to do that. Um, Maybe just wear a big moustache. Yeah. Literally anything else. And the scene doesn't, it doesn't even work for the scene too, because Beaks like knows that it's, he knows it's 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 Winthrop, so it's not even like the big elaborate getup helps at all. So it would have been even funnier if it was just like a simple. If one. it was just a mustache or something, yeah, or like a pair of glasses or something, because that's all. I mean, it, it, Jamie Lee, he he knows it's them. You know, he's not he's not dumb. He's not a dumb dumb. You know, Ackroyd doing that is just like yeah, that is very much like this is going on my cringe compilation you know, kind of a thing when it happens. It's so jarring. It's so stupid. It happens and we need to acknowledge it and that it is very uncomfortable and inappropriate. But I mean, it's taken us this long to get to a film with blackface. Uh, Which for a classic film podcast. Exactly. It's quite a feat. Uh, And this film came out in 1983. So... Dan Aykroyd was out there and he said, you know what? You know what no one is doing nowadays? We're digging up Don Amici. We might as well bring back blackface. And and that was the stance he took, and it was a bad stance. It's definitely a bad stance. Um, bad call? It was a terrible stance. I wonder if anyone's asked him about it recently, but I don't know if he answers questions that aren't about UFOs. It's almost as bad as the choice, the choices he makes in the music tie-in video for Nothing But Trouble. Oh, boy. Where he's dressed as a member of NWA. <laughs> Oh my god, I don't think I've ever seen that. Uh, you need to, uh, because you it's to. all around the world, the same song is the name of the song. And Dan Aykroyd dresses uh, like he's from all around the world. Um, <laughs> perhaps from China. Just a whole lot of decisions were made during the filming of that. And it's probably indicative of why... He- it's his sole directorial venture. And that was like 10 years after Trading Places, so he clearly didn't learn much from his initial... Just didn't fucking learn. Tiff can attest to the fact that racism doesn't exist in Canada. Oh, of course. So Dan Aykroyd didn't know. Yeah. He didn't know that was offensive. Just like that K-pop girl who who did a racism, and then somebody's like, she lived in Canada, she should know. And they were like, uh, some parts of, with some stands on the internet, were like, some parts of Canada don't have black people in them. Like, where? Where in Canada? <laughs> I mean, maybe the places that don't have human beings in them, I guess. I was like, what, the places with seals? I just thought that was so funny. I was like, somebody was like, well, Canada doesn't have a racism problem, so she wouldn't know that it was offensive to mock black people. And I was like, okay, let's unpack this. I mean, the, the weirdest cognitive dissonance in that film clip is that it's Dan Aykroyd and Tupac Shakur in the same video. Yeah. So, um, Aykroyd hologram at Coachella <laughs> next year, I'm calling it. Him and fucking Tom DeLonge talking about fucking aliens. 
You know, they should have a podcast. I would listen. I would, I would also listen. listen. I would then call in and ask Dan Aykroyd about the blackface <laughs> on his UFO podcast. I would invade his safe space. Because safe spaces aren't real, Dan Aykroyd, apparently. Not for people who do blackface. Just like Canada's president. Just like Canada's president. Well, it's like Rob McElhoney. You know, it's like, do I love It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Yes. Do I love Mac? Yes. Do I think that breaking out the blackface on multiple occasions over the course of sunny <laughs> yes and do i think they've learned from it hopefully do i think dan Aykroyd ever learned from it maybe not no i don't think he did all right i guess that brings us into me trying to clumsily explain what happens at the end of trading places <laughs> uh so i'm gonna put on my stock trader hat also my cool stock trader bomber jacket that Tiffin Island is a real thing that people get at the New York Stock Exchange. They get a cool bomber jacket. Uh, so in fairness, not even the people writing this movie understood it. They had to... Uh, so John Landis said it took him a long time to understand the colon and what was going on. Harris... Timothy Harris, the screenwriter, said he asked some people in the biz to walk him through it, and then they wrote it, and he said it was like studying for exam- an exam. You know, you kind of understand it the day of, and then 24 hours later, you just can't remember how anything works, which is uh, true for me with literally everything that I learned. I just literally don't fucking understand anything about economics, but I love watching documentaries on scandals. Ponzi schemes, all up in that bitch. Love that shit. So, it begins with the crop report, which the Dukes are paying Clarence Beaks to get to them. Uh, essentially, they're paying for information that is not available to the public, well, before it's available to the public, which is inside trading. In the plan of Winthrop and Valentine, they steal the crop report, which says that the orange crop report was good, so that means that orange juice prices are set to fall, and then they change it to say that the crop was bad and that it was affected by the winter so that the prices of orange juice will rise. Then the next act of the plan is them actually in the exchange. So with this faulty information, the Duke brothers tell their trader to buy up orange juice stocks because they think that the price is going to rise. And they tell the trader to do this no matter how much the price rises, just keep buying. When other traders see that the Dukes' trader is doing this, they do the same because they think they know something. Technically they do, it's just incorrect. Then our heroes, Winthorpe, he shouts this. You cannot tell that he's shouting this, but he says, sell a 30th of April at 142. Uh, you definitely cannot understand him saying this. Tiff will put a clip in of him saying that. No. This means that he's making a promise to sell orange juice in April for $1.42 per pound. And as all the other traders think that the price in April will be higher than $1.42, they buy up as many contracts as possible. Then, in the middle of trading, the crop report is released. And the key information about the orange crop being fine lets traders know that the price of orange juice won't rise, so now they need to sell all the contracts that they bought up, leading to the price of orange juice falling. To summarise, Winthorpe and Valentine buy when the price is low and sell when the price is high, while the Dukes do the opposite and lose all their money. I don't know if that helped clear anything up, but that's how it works. I don't know if that could work today. Well, actually, I have some info on that, but (laughs) (laughs) that's how it works. You know, the only thing I know about commodities trading is that this whole situation is the product of the Onion Futures Act. So if you want a little insight into how 
price volatility works and is curtailed by the existence of something like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange depicted in uh, Trading Places, maybe take a look at the Onion Futures Act, which also then had an effect on the film industry. That's kind of kind of complicated. I mean, if you want to see how it could be deftly exploited, just look at what happened with Enron and their um, trading <laughs> of energy in California. Uh, they made the price of en- well, first they made energy a commodity, which it never should have been. Um, it should be something that's owned by the state. Uh, they then made the price of electricity go up by creating a false scarcity by just shutting down plants on a whim so that California experienced max blackouts. I would definitely recommend the documentary Spartus Guys in the Room about Enron because it's truly one of the most insane stories that's ever happened. <laughs> it's infuriating. It's really hard to watch, too. It's hard to watch. It's Some of the traders are still so remorseless that I just I feel like FEMA death camps should be a real thing, but only, oh. only for <laughs> the elites only oh, for people that yeah. do this no absolutely i always i always tell people like if there is a single subject that i think could literally radicalize someone tomorrow it would be seeing smartest guys in the room and watching not only a how a select group of people are made to take the fall for the whole situation like the you know the the one guy from Enron who commits suicide and then the fact that so many of these people are still working in finance unabated it's just like the financial crisis yes and then and then also to see what happened to the people of California and to see the, the people who could who could not cope with the rising the skyrocketing energy bills and what happened to them and to to see the protests to see the sheer desperation on people's faces and then that made them elect Arnold fucking Schwarzenegger yeah god I know but to see and to think that then it's you know people are seeing that 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 desperation and that horror like fucking like cracking open a cold yeah, one yeah fucking laughing you know? about it yeah and fucking laughing about it and being like <laughs> you know like that that will make you want to go full like squeaky and assassinate these people yeah I mean as a very leftist podcast <laughs> um, I definitely recommend uh, watching Noam Chomsky's documentary about the banking industry in the United States and why it is the way it is. I feel comfortable recommending Noam Chomsky to our audience. Didn't but Noam Chomsky was recently in the news. Did he not know what Baby Yoda was? Is that what it was? Well, I don't know. I didn't hear that story. <laughs> Let me see. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't got my Google alert on for Noam yes, Chomsky. Yes, somebody emailed him a question about Baby Yoda's grasp of language, and he was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> he didn't know. He'd never heard of Baby Yoda, which I get it. Like, he's probably, like, not on, like, Twitter, but... I mean, it's only by the grace of God that Werner Herzog knows who Baby Yoda Yoda is. He doesn't know who anyone else in Star Wars is. I love it. We've talked so much about Werner Herzog and Baby Yoda on this podcast, but like, I I like to think that Baby Yoda affected him more on an emotional level than Grizzly Man. I think that Baby Yoda blew Grizzly Man out of the water. He was just like, you know, fuck Grizzly Man. The Mandalorian is the most emotional project I've ever been involved in. Yeah, Werner Herzog looked into the eyes of people on death row, and then he looked into the (laughs) eyes of Baby Yoda, and he felt more looking into the eyes of Baby Yoda than he ever felt before. That's so true. It's like like love. You know, you you might go with what's, you know, safe, and you know is always going to give you that that hit that you need, that touch, and that's, you know, that's Grizzly Man. You know the Grizzly Man is going to make you 
fearful of nature and it's going to make you question like human motivations to like to conquer the wilderness but then baby yoda comes into your life and it's wild and it's unpredictable unpredictable and you don't know what he's going to do next (laughs) is he going to drink some soup is he going to force mind bend somebody into a pretzel you don't know and that's what keeps it fresh and sexy and exciting and then you run to him in the rain and it's raining and then you kiss and then it plays a cranberries song uh all right well i guess this leads us on to how this film was received um it was met with positive reviews from critics, including our good friend Roger Ebert, um, saying that Trading Places resembles Tootsie, and for that matter, some of the classic Frank Capra, Preston Sturgis comedies. It wants to be funny, but it also wants to tell us something about human nature, and there are whole stretches when we forget it's a comedy and get involved in the story. And it's a great idea for a story. But what's most visible in the movie is the engaging acting. Murphy and Aykroyd are perfect foils for each other in Trading Places, because they are both capable of being so specific specifically eccentric that we're never just looking at a black and a white great wording there Rog. Um, they both play characters with a lot of native intelligence to go along with their prejudice peculiarities and personal styles it's fun to watch them thinking uh, and then Mark Monahan from The Telegraph said, like all the best comedies, John Landis's film is rooted in external truths, however broadly drawn. And again, another comparison was made by Rex Reed. Uh, Trading Places is an updated Frank Capra with four-letter words, and I can think of no higher praise than that. Uh, and so audiences tended to agree with the film being a really good one and worth seeing. Um, on its opening weekend, it made uh, $7.3 million dollars. Uh, ranking third as the third highest grossing film of the weekend behind Octopussy, starring our good friend Louis Jordan, and Return of the Jedi uh, came out on the same weekend. Wow. Um, and the film remained in the top 10 grossing films for 17 weeks and went on to earn $90 million. And it was the fourth highest grossing film of 1983 behind Flashdance, Terms of Endearment, and Return of the Jedi. And it's just the second highest grossing R-rated film of 1983 behind Flashdance. I wonder how it stacks up against um, just the movies that you've covered from 1982. I mean, it definitely made more money than the fucking thing. I just can't imagine Trading Places and Return of the Jedi existing in the same world, let alone I, the same... On the same weekend! That's crazy. <laughs> you know, and that's why, like, I always hate... I, no, I don't hate to. I love to be that kind of person who's like, things just aren't the same anymore. But I can't think of, like, a weekend recently, in, within recent memory, and by recent memory, I mean, like, the last, like, ten years, where there have been, like, two movies in a theater that I've wanted to see at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And, like, even movies I want to go see aren't even playing. Like, I wanted to go see, um... What's the big crocodile movie? Oh, uh, fuck. <laughs> uh, Crawl. Yeah, I wanted to go see Crawl, and the only session times they had were at 4 p.m. when I'm at work and then 10 p.m. and I'm an old person I don't want to go outside after 9 p.m. <laughs> Films today huh? I live in a city that ostensibly has an economy centered around movies and it's like the lighthouse was in theaters for like a week like I got stuff to do and can we hold over any major Oscar contender for more than like three days but I think the problem is that oh, this is an LA specific problem but people who are interested in movies in LA oftentimes work in the industry so a lot of times they get screeners or they have friends who have screeners they have access to screeners so it's not like as I'm like I, I wonder if I lived in fucking Kansas would I have a better chance of seeing some of these movies you know is it easier to see Parasite in Kansas maybe <laughs> maybe it is because I'm not assuming that I'm a 
member of the Directors Guild of America in Kansas. <laughs> I think I do have a DGA screener of Parasite, like literally next to my fireplace right now. But um, we'll fucking pass it on. Time to rip it. Do you remember a couple years ago when um, some screeners leaked and it turned out they were sourced back to Ellen DeGeneres' copy? No. No, I don't remember that story. Because I, a lot of people, I guess people don't know this, but screeners, I don't know how they do it. I'm assuming it's some sort of like file encoding, but like that they do it so that if uh, a screener is ripped and uploaded to the internet, they can tell who's it came from and a bunch of movies or tv shows or something for one of the big major awards i don't know if it was the oscars like the globes or whatever ended up on the internet and they were from ellen's ellen DeGeneres' screeners and so i don't know if like an employee of hers didn't understand that these could be traced back or whether or not ellen is just a big supporter of piracy which doesn't quite square with her being a monstrous little capitalist yeah ellen's like a fucking cop it had to be like someone in her house i love this concept but yeah i'm guessing saying like somebody you know an intern was like oh i really want to see mike and molly season three and then ripped it and then it was like oh that's that's what i think happened i think they did that voice too i think they would oh speaking of great voices that happened in this movie everything that eddie murphy ever says is funny. oh absolutely he's the funniest 22 year old that's ever lived i was just say i want tiff to put in my favorite line from the movie which is the phone in my limousine is is busted. I can't get in contact with my business. <laughs> so I need you to put that right here because I think that is literally like I howl with laughter at that. That moment. entire jail scene is so good. Tell how you beat on the cop. Wasn't no cop, man. It was cops. Plural. Nine, ten cops. Beat the shit out of ten cops and had to change my whole strategy around. Yo, when they brought you in here and booked you, you was crying like a pussy. Yeah. That's because it's one of the cops fell. He threw tear gas in my face. And that's the kind of shit they use on crowds, man. I still walk in here like a man, so get out of my face, all right? I mean, you, you beating up on a man? You putting a man in a hospital? How come I don't see no marks on you? Yeah. Because I'm a karate man, all right? Karate man bruise on the inside. They don't show their weaknesses. But you don't know that because you're a big Barry White-looking motherfucker. Now get off my back, all right? I wish my bitches hurry up and get here. I ain't got no time to be sitting inside this side with you. Where is your bitches, Mr. Big Time Pimp? Yeah. Didn't I tell you that the phone in my limousine is busted and I can't get in contact with my bitches? I'm a karate man. And also, I love the motherfucker. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and when he when he when he's got the house party going on, and he's like running around, like people never heard of coasters, and you know he's he's, who's putting out, yeah, who's somebody got cools on like Persian carpet from Persia, and the whole whole bit is so fucking funny. He's so funny. I know to some degree you're supposed to think that that's like Eddie sort of beginning his descent into like yuppiedom, but it's also deeply relatable. Oh, yeah. yeah. This party and he just wants it over and everyone's making a fucking mess of his nice shit and it's like, get out.
You know, I, I remember reading, um, for some reason, I had a subscription to Money Magazine. <laughs> I don't remember how that happened or where that came from. but Because I, <laughs> I love to take those, like, surveys where I'll be like, hey, you know, you want a free magazine subscription. And I'll be like, well, I already get Mary Claire and Good Housekeeping, so what can I get this time? And it'll be like, yeah, Money Magazine. But in one of the, the issues sometimes, I guess, end with a, was it even Money Magazine? I get a lot of magazines, whatever, uh, for free. I don't pay for any of them. But uh, they're like celebrity profiles at the end where they ask like a celebrity about their money and they were asking RuPaul. And RuPaul, part of what RuPaul talked about was um, how it's hard for people who don't grow up with money and suddenly become successful to understand that you can't take everyone with you. You can't buy every relative and every friend what they want or what they need. It, you can't, that's how you go broke, you know, and a lot of people have trouble understanding that. I kind of, I that kind of jogged, that memory was jogged while we were watching the movie because it's like, it's not even Eddie, Eddie realizing that now there's like a barrier between him and other people. Like you said, like it's going to be a, his descent into yuppiedom. It's more like, it's not played even as if it has any great philosophical weight. It's just like, Eddie's just like, holy fuck, I hate you people. I just realized how annoying you are. Now that you're in my personal space, get off my fucking carpet. Yeah. Which is is such a good way of playing that. And it goes back to the idea that this movie tackles a lot of really important concepts and themes and principles and ideas, but doesn't, it, it does it in a really subtle and fun way. And you're just like, all right, this is a facet of Eddie's personality that maybe he hasn't gotten to explore yet because of his circumstances in life. And now that is, he's got some nice stuff and he doesn't want you to fucking touch it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's been nearly 40 years since this film came out and obviously it had a profound impact on culture and on film, not only launching, um, a few careers, but also reviving some careers, particularly that of Dan Aykroyd and Don Amici, and obviously led to the formation of some of the comedy culture that was coming out of the 80s. Obviously, some of it is entirely independent of this movie, but, um, particularly for, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd, they were very big players during the 80s, and I would think that we would be extremely worse off if it weren't for their contributions to film. But on a strange note, this film has affected the very subject of the movie. In 2010, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission's chief, Gary Gensler, stated in testimony he gave to the 111th Congress we have recommended banning using misappropriated government information to trade in the commodity markets. In the movie Trading Places starring Eddie Murphy, the Duke brothers intended to profit from trades in frozen concentrated orange juice futures contracts using illicitly obtained and not yet public Department of Agriculture crop report. The Eddie Murphy rule, as it has become known, later <laughs> came into effect as Section 136 of the Wall Street Transparency and Accountability Act of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. It's the paragraph which deals with insider trading. So there is the Eddie Murphy rule. The Eddie Murphy rule. And also another fun fact, in Italy, this movie has become a Christmas Eve classic being broadcast by Italian television every year on December 24 since 1986. So there you go. Huge in Italy. And then to end on, um, I have this quote from Timothy Harris, the screenwriter, which really, I guess, surmises how much things have changed and how perhaps people aren't as receptive to the biting nature of satire as they once were. But he says this, 
Somebody came up to me recently and said it was because of trading places that he'd gone into the world of finance, which is a huge paradigm turn, that a film written as a satire of that world ends up inspiring somebody to go into that world and make a lot of money. But it goes to show how much times change since that film was made, which is, I mean, I guess you really live long enough to see yourself become the, the villain. That is quite a life choice. I'm just seeing that movie and being like, yep, that's what I want to be. Maybe he saw it on cable at like 2am and it was also like dubbed in Spanish or something. <laughs> he saw it in Italy on Christmas Eve. <laughs> One of my very favourite scenes is when the Dukes are being extremely condescending and explaining what they do as commodities traders to Eddie Murphy. Sit down. No thanks, guys. I already had breakfast this morning. This is not a meal, Valentine. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. We are commodities brokers, William. Now, what are commodities? Commodities are agricultural products, like coffee that you had for breakfast, wheat, which is used to make bread, pork bellies, which is used to make bacon, which you might find in a bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwich. And they're like, this is pork belly, which you find in bacon, which you might find in a bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich. And then Eddie Murphy breaks the fourth wall and just looks dead straight at the camera. And it's so funny. Like Judy Dench and Cats. Like Judy Dench and Cats. Like Judy Dench and Cats. Which we have now seen and was a full-on nightmare. I loved Cats. Of course you would, you filth monger. I thought it was so fun. And when Tiff said, like, there were, like, long, like, interminable stretches, I was like, it was interminable, like, in the best way. Like, I never wanted that movie to end. I also thought it was going to be much longer than it was. So when it was only, like, an hour and 40 minutes or whatever, I felt felt like I was getting ripped off. Well, that's because they they couldn't render half of the fucking movie. I just, I really, I really loved it. I thought it was, it was so, like, seeing film history being born, you know, I I think it it was exactly what it was like, you know, when um, somebody saw three strip Technicolor for the first time. Um, it was probably like witnessing the birth of human flight in Kitty Hawk. I feel Hawk like we Wright shouldn't Brothers. be enabling any of the people involved with the making of this movie because it just really goes to show the hubris of Hollywood and the fact now that many of the stars are coming out and being like, oh, you guys just don't understand art. And, like, it's like, "Mm, no, we understand art. We just don't think that this is art. Also, female cats don't have boobs. On the other hand, James Corden, I believe his comment was that he hasn't seen it, but he's heard it's terrible. And he's terrible in it. He's terrible in it. He's awful. Awful. I think Jason Derulo deserves an Oscar. Holy shit. Jason Derulo. (laughs) I just think that Candace needs to be, like, gagged. If Tiff is going to cut out me saying the C word because the North American audiences aren't ready for that, um, (laughs) then we should cut out Candace espousing her love of this movie. I love this. I was also very stoned. I must admit, I was really, really stoned. So that was well, you really buried the fucking lead there, dude. Yeah, I, I know. I genuinely, I genuinely. Like, you link that tweet where it's, like, me, like, stop, and my brain, like, never, ever, cat so clever as magical. And I was just like, this song, I love that. And I also, okay, I just wanted to share this one thing. I didn't know that Taylor Swift had written a song for the movie, but um, while I was watching it and it got to the song that ultimately she wrote, 
I remember thinking, I was like, God, did Andrew Lloyd Webber or his lyricist, whoever the fuck, get like clonked over the head with like an anvil? Because this is so juvenile. These lyrics sound like they were written in crayon. And you know what? Taylor Swift wrote them. So that makes sense. (laughs) I remember thinking, I was just like, God, this sucks ass. Amelia and I watched it. We watched a cam together over Skype and... Stone Cold Sober. Yeah. I had that same experience though where that song started and I Googled it because I don't know like the Cats soundtrack off by heart, but I Googled it because it sounded like kind of different than the other ones. And it's like, yeah, that's the fucking Taylor Swift song. And I think that's exactly what I said. I was like, of course. Of course. And it's just, it's also, it was also very funny because um, I loved seeing Ian McKellen really gave it way more gravitas than it deserved because, like, he was going for it. He was the only one in the movie doing any work. That's the thing. It's like you forget that the man is half cat. Like, you forget that you're watching cats. You just think (laughs) for one blissful moment that you're just watching Ian McKellen in a movie that isn't cats. And then you remember that he's a cat. (laughs) It's just, it all goes downhill. That was my thing when I was watching. I was like, there'd be a moment. I'd be like, oh, that's good. And I'd be like, wait, I'm watching Caps. And Amelia, not Amelia, Amelia, but Mrs. Friggy Amelia, leaned over to me during the, the Jennifer Hudson memory sequence and was just like, because she, you know, knows music theory and all of that as a professional working musician. It's just like, that's not supposed to be X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what anything is supposed to be in this movie because none of it is what it's supposed to be. I'm not supposed to see human fingers with human fingernails, I don't think. Well, who fucking knows? All I know is that it shouldn't have been made. And that's that, really. I think, thank God that it was. You know what? Actually, I think it's really good this movie was made. And here's why. I think that, I think that, no, uh, no, I'm, I'm being serious here. I think that this is potentially a nail in the coffin of these low effort movie musical adaptations bullshit that we're seeing right now that is starting to foment into like a real storm i think this movie flopping is a good sign well a bad sign you know for the people who are making it but a good sign for us that west side story will do poorly i think that this this tendency that we're going through right now to take a stage play and render it or not render it in the case of cats um Without any sort of, like, understanding of, like, how a movie musical is supposed to be made, without any respect for the craft of a movie musical, without any respect for filmmaking. And I don't care what anyone says, hiring Tom Hooper demonstrates that they did not have respect for filmmaking in the, as an art in the first place, because the man can't direct his way out of a paper bag. I think it just shows that this low-effort kind of mega-musical-like cash-in shit that the studios were starting to trend toward hopefully will, will die off. Because the fact that something related to Cats, as an intellectual property has it made ass loads of money i think has to be shocking to someone out there because on paper it looks like a very safe bet i guess is what i'm trying to say it shows that maybe the movie futures market should be allowed to well i guess by making cats and then not making any movie uh, money off it universal kind of created their own movie futures market i love how it's always in my episodes that you go off into these tangents like in thing there was puppets and now it's cats. Well, no, but I, th- I think this is relevant because um, I think that I think that cats is cats is the bellwether for everything that's wrong with the film industry as we go into the year 2020. And I was also making, I thought, a very clever, if impenetrable, link back to the commodities exchange as depicted in the movie I, Trading I, Places. I caught because it. Because of movie futures. It was a joke about movie futures. Thank you. I caught it. It just wasn't funny. Well, I, I guess that draws things to a close. <laughs> 
Um, once again, we cannot stay on topic, uh, but hopefully I gave you some interesting facts about how economics work. I certainly don't remember how they work. And thank God for Eddie Murphy's film career. Absolutely. We love Eddie Murphy. We love Eddie Murphy. Pluto Nash wasn't that bad. Um... <laughs> I remember seeing The Nutty Professor as a child and finding it very humorous. Okay, well, I wouldn't go that far. So, I was like, I don't know how old I was when that movie came out. Not not particularly, not very old. How old was I when that movie came out? What year did The Nutty Professor come out? Eddie Murphy, Nutty. The Nutty Professor's from 1996? It's nearly as old as you, Candace. It is nearly as Eddie Murphy has been on his creative decline for as long as I've been alive. Oh, you know what? I think I was thinking of the sequel. I think I was thinking of The Clumps. I apologize. I do like The Nutty Professor, though. I think I saw The Clumps in a, a movie theater. I think that's how we should end it. <laughs> it is so goddamn hot in this room. I need to end this podcast. Um, it is currently 31 degrees, and I'm sweating so bad. I hope you appreciate the lengths I go to to record this podcast for you people. Recommend it to your friends, to your relatives, particularly... Um, people who don't have the same politics as us just to see how mad it makes them liven up your next family dinner Mm -hmm. thank you for listening yeah we look forward to hearing your thoughts your feelings um please rate and review us on itunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts uh we always love hearing from you don't tell me about economics i just don't care uh definitely don't mansplain anything to me Uh, Next time, I swear to God, I will not do a film made in the 80s. Because your next movie, I think you're going all the way back. I'm going all the way back, baby. Back to the Future is what I'm doing. The the original 80s. (laughs) The original 80s. I'm definitely going back in time uh, to borrow a phrase from Huey Lewis in the news. And yeah, you'll enjoy it, hopefully, with all of your fingers and toes. That's a clue. That's a little Easter egg for you. That is a great clue. (laughs) Yeah, go kneecap some old people. Yep, kneecap some old people. That's what Dan Ackward would want. Do some insider trading. And we will see you in 2020. Yeah, 2020. fuck. 2020. Oh, God. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, Randy, Morty, this is nice. I like this. William? Uh, Billy Ray. William, this is Coleman. He'll look after your day-to-day needs. Can I relieve you of those, sir? Uh, you get a glass, I give you a sip, man. Yeah, perhaps your coat, sir. Uh, yes, this is my coat.